0: Saints podcast.
1: hello and welcome back to the ordinary saints podcast hello uh it's been a while for all sorts of reasons
0: yes lots of reasons but the important thing is that we're back
1: yes we are and uh hopefully we'll crank out a few of these before the end of the year. But you know, who knows? Life is a funny thing.
0: It really is.
1: We've both been quite busy uh, in recent times. Uh, I've had COVID. What about you?
0: I have not had COVID, but we've had everything else. Everything else possible, we've had it.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of winter bugs going around for sure.
0: We should apologise ahead of, before we go any further, that there are major roadworks happening not far from this room across the road. So, if you're hearing any strange construction esque noises, uh, that is why. And we are trying our best to, you know, keep this sound quality okay. But yeah, sorry about that.
1: Yeah, there's only so much we can do about that, I'm afraid. Correct. The other concerning thing about that is that there are huge pieces of machinery moving across the road. And quite often, this building shakes uh, quite an unnerving amount.
0: It does feel like we are experiencing the odd earthquake uh, and then we have to remind ourselves, nope, it's just construction. (laughs) So if we sort of panic or pause at any point, maybe it's a shudder. You never know. So
1: since we last met, uh, a few things have happened. Ordinary Saints community has continued to meet uh, regularly, which is great. And there's been some some fun things going on there. Of course, everyone's welcome to come and uh, investigate what being part of the Ordinary Saints community in person is all about. But there are a few other events that have happened and one of those things that we actually talked about last year is this event called the Diocesan Ministry Conference and we talked about it last year because I was one of the speakers at conference last year but this year someone else who presents on the podcast was a presenter at the Ministry Conference.
0: Yes, so I took a workshop, um, I'm part of the Ministry Formation team here at the Diocese of Auckland. Uh, And we all kind of have a different specialty or focus, but we all work together. Uh, So my focus is obviously young adults, uh, which is a bit of a nebulous term, but basically 20s and 30s-ish, right? And so I was one of the presenters along with my other colleagues. So I focused on the concept of being formed in conversation. The whole conference was about formation, right? Being formed in faith, formed as the people of God. And my focus was, what does it look like to be formed in conversation, and there was a h- bunch of really cool stuff that I talked about, but we can't, you know, use the whole podcast to talk about all of that. But one part of it has stayed with me and has continued on, uh, not just in my conversations with other, other colleagues, um, but also some young adults since then. And so I wanted to just bounce a few things off you, Richard. And I know that you're actually extremely experienced in this area. So here's a chance for us to talk about deconstruction.
1: Oh, wow. So quite a lot of things for us to talk about there.
0: Absolutely. And I'll let you know what the context was in this workshop, because one of the things I was focusing on was the importance of leaders in the church being really relationally intentional with young people, right? So in conversation, so making sure that we are actually developing relationships which preserve one another's autonomy. So they're relationships where we're really genuinely present to one another in conversations. They're not tokenistic. They're not like, hey, I need a, someone to man the sound desk or woman the sound desk. Can you please come and do that for me at church, right? It's more, hey, how are you? Who are you? You know, what are you into? What are you passionate about? What um, excites you when you get up in the morning? All that kind of stuff, you know? So we're actually going into the real sort of chats.
1: Ah, so rather than just recruiting young people to do <laughs> jobs at church... <laughs> I should be talking
0: to them? Something like that, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I talked about the some of the work of Martin Buber, and one of his big concepts is this idea of the... I-thou relationship or the I-it relationship.
1: Are those two things different?
0: They are different. So say you and I, Richard, we're in this conversation right now. We're looking at each other. We're engaged. We've got our, you know, like we have body language that says that actually I'm listening to you. So much of our conversation is body language, right? Mm. So if we're not looking at one another, if we're our sort of shoulders are, you know, angled towards someone or, you know, we're sort of clearly sitting away from somebody, we know that that other person knows that they're not being listened to, right? So, so much of our communication is with our body and not in a creepy way, obviously, just genuinely, you know, that's how we communicate. And so if we are truly present to one another and inquiring about the other person and respecting that person's autonomy, i.e. not trying to convince the person of your idea or not trying to come at the conversation with any kind of agenda. Mm. Um, if we're in that relational space, that is the I-thou relationship, right? And so in that space, we are opening up what booba refers to as the between, which is this amazing space of discovery. And it's more than equal than the some parts of each person's contribution to that conversation, right? So something new happens in that space. And it's kind of—I mean, at this workshop, I used a pad and a pen to try and demonstrate this. So I got someone to come up and write a scribble on the board, and then another person got up, and they added something to it, and then a third person, and a fourth person, and a fifth person, and eventually, there was an image that happened. Mm. And I didn't give any instructions. I didn't say you have to do this or you—you know—I just said add, add to it, and it became you could see patterns emerging and you could see the ways in which these lines were intersecting and one of them was you know an ocean figure with someone on a boat and you know like it was really interesting just to see this image forming which if you looked at any one of the contributions would not look like anything but altogether it looks like something new and that's kind of this in-between space and conversation is that our individual contributions wouldn't be much, but together in this in-between space, it's a space of discovery, not just for one another in terms of our individual, you know, getting to know the other person, but actually for ourselves, you know, so we actually can discover more of what it means to be human ourselves in the conversation. It's kind of amazing. So that's a summary. There's so much more I could say, but that's what led me to talk about the I-it relationship, which is kind of the opposite of that, right? Right. So when you have a relationship, and it kind of plays out with people in power quite often, if you've got power over somebody else, um, you often come at the relationship in an unbalanced way, uh, or it can be that you've got an agenda for the conversation, i.e. can you operate the sound desk, Um, (laughs) or you just genuinely want that relationship to be one that serves your ego, that makes you feel better as a person, Um, whatever it is. We can come into conversations with an agenda, whether we're aware of it or not, and can end up treating this person not like a person, but as an object. And so this conversation was one that I felt was quite important because unfortunately, young people do tend to be at the receiving end of this kind of relationship and conversation
1: so let me jump in there a little bit because there are bound to be some other people who have just heard all of your explanation who like me are now going oh crumbs I don't I don't know how to talk to people all I do is (laughs) think of what I'm gonna say next and I'm not really listening and am I just objectifying these other people and look the one thing I'd just say is none of us are perfect listeners oh no it can be a real challenge to actually be really present with another person mm. in a conversation, and to get into that kind of liminal space where we're exploring and we're discovering new things together, mm. right? Because mm. most of our conversations don't happen like that; they're quite functional. Who's picking up the kids today? Oh, it's me. Oh, no, it's you. <laughs> oh, I've got this one. <laughs> yeah, and, practical and, and We're not necessarily getting into a real depth of relationship, right, mm. at that mm. point. And lots of us operate in that space all the time. Mm. But I think the exciting thing about listening skills and fostering deeper, more intentional kind of conversations. Is it something we can all get better at, right? Because it's a skill.
0: Exactly. This is the whole point was I was hoping that through this workshop. We could all just realize at the very least, this is a skill we can all get better at. This is something we can all do in the context of ministry, regardless of whether we're in leadership, regardless of just with our mates, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's something that we can all kind of do and be engaged in. Um, and it's a real gift to other people as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because look, I can definitely think of pastoral conversations where I've missed the boat because I was thinking about what I needed to do or what I needed to say or just wasn't in the moment. I can think of moments where I got it right, where I said something deep is happening here. Hang on. I need to get kind of into that mode of really listening and putting my attention on the other person. I know that it's possible to move between those two different things and kind of reflecting on it is one of the ways we get better at it, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did want to name as well, and I'll name it again now, but I I said at the workshop, you know, I wasn't able to have the time to kind of say, listen, I'm not talking about the kind of extra stuff that comes around uh, discussion around mental health. Uh, So if someone is um, having suicidal ideation, things like that, you know, heavy stuff does come out when we are fully participating and listening to someone in conversation. Mm. They will start to get deep. And that's great. That's a good sign. It shows that they trust you, you know, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, you've got to be doing something right for those sorts of conversations to happen.
0: But when they do happen, it does take a particular skill set in order to know what to do. Again, those are obtainable. Everybody can have a part to play in this. You know, it's not just... As soon as someone mentions that they are struggling with their mental health, that we say, oh, sorry, I've got to stop the conversation and send you to a mental health specialist. You know, actually, we have a huge part to play. And um, but I wasn't able to talk about that in the in the workshop. Uh, and we probably won't be able to get into that today in this podcast. Um, but one of the other things that I didn't get to talk about was boundaries, because. Again, once we're in these relationships, hopefully, I mean, according to the I vow theory by Martin Buber, it, you are in the whole course of these conversations, actually recognizing the autonomy of the other, right? Mm. So you, you would think that naturally you'd have a good sense of boundaries at that, at that time, you know, so you are you and I am me and we don't cross over, right? But unfortunately, that does happen a lot, especially when we get into you know, conversations that are quite deep um, and that one person might be in a space you know, where they're needing a lot of support, it can be an easy trap to fall into that we start to sort of contaminate one another's selves, if that makes sense, and start to lean too much into the dependence of another person in a way that kind of diminishes their autonomy a little bit.
1: Yeah, so that makes sense to me because when we move into a, a deeper level of conversation with people, there's an intimacy that develops right and i don't mean intimacy in an inappropriate way but just through sharing vulnerability so the closer we get to people the more we reveal kind of parts of ourselves that we don't typically reveal to people just in passing conversations yeah and with that there's sort of there's emotions that can come into play and suddenly where we can sometimes be quite cautious and and well-boundaried in relationships sometimes when those other things happen it's not quite so easy and we need to work a bit harder at how we how we maintain the i-thou relationship
0: yeah. yeah exactly and it's you know it's not just about preserving the autonomy of the other person right it's about preserving your autonomy as well and recognizing like you know i am a self and you are a self and that's a beautiful thing yeah
1: and i think lots of us have had that experience where we've been in a partial relationship and we realize Actually, what's happening in this other person's life is because we have a level of shared vulnerability, uh, I'm affected uh, by what's happening in their lives. I I, I may feel concerned or worried or sad or upset because they are. And that happens in human relationships, right?
0: That's completely natural. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we learn and especially for those in in ministry, but this happens, you know, pretty much any (laughs) sort of form of work I can think of, you know. I mean, how do hairdressers do it all day? Right. They're cutting hair. They're listening to people. You know, often when people get their hair cut, they want to talk, or at least they feel the social pressure to talk. Mm. Um, <laughs> and they hear, about the hairdressers just hear so much, right? And yeah. they've got such an array of personalities coming in, um, potentially lonely people who, you know, it's their only chance perhaps to have a conversation. Mm. Uh, and then these hairdressers go home at the end of the day. Now, I have a very good relationship with my hairdresser, so I, she tells me stuff. And she, <laughs> she says, you know, look, sometimes I just go home and I'm feeling so depressed. Oh, you know, wow. I just, it's so heavy. And, you know, she'd said that she'd cut someone's hair and they had said to her, look, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I haven't told anyone else. And I think, oh, my goodness, hairdressers are like community pastors, you know. And so I guess my point is that this kind of thing can happen, not just for those in ministry, but everywhere. And it's about, I think boundaries is a little bit about how we protect ourselves too. And it's not about not feeling. It's not about, you know, cutting off and becoming apathetic towards people's pain.
1: Oh, no, not at all. I
0: don't know if we're able to do that. I mean, I personally can't. I feel deeply mm. um, and care deeply. In order to keep caring for that person or these people, I need to make sure that I have strategies in order to cope so that I can continue to care i um, not just for that person but other people as well and those look different for everybody but for me that's actually part of keeping boundaries is how do i sustain myself so that i can keep offering this
1: yeah the word i'd use is how am i responsible about my stuff and mm, their stuff mm. yeah And it really is good. that thing of just going yeah there's a responsibility in caring relationships for me to be offering the best of myself to not be causing harm and when I make mistakes, to put them right. Mm. So I think that's the other thing people forget. Sometimes we do put a foot wrong in conversations. Sometimes we walk away and we go, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. Or we walk away and we go, oh, I know what I should have said. (laughs) I'm really good at that. (laughs) Review the conversation and suddenly it's like, oh, I know what I should have said. Well, if we're doing the relationship stuff right and we're putting the time and the right kind of care in, hopefully there's an opportunity to go back and say, hey, I thought about what you said last time. I, and I, I, I suddenly realised this is what I should have said. And and I'm sorry I didn't say it at the time, but, you know, sometimes we're geniuses in hindsight. Uh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> it happens very often to me. Yeah. <laughs> I very seldom have the perfect thing to say in any one situation. But that's, that's a natural thing, right? That's a human thing. But equally, we... So in all of this, we, we do have a part to play, right? Because we can get better at conversation. We can get better at listening. We can get better at boundaries. Um, all of these things are obtainable for us, whatever kind of field we work in. But I think these skills really make the difference for people. And I would argue that young adults generally in the church do not have relationships like this, particularly with their leaders necessarily necessarily in a way that I see regularly (laughs) it might happen some places and that's awesome and when I do see it I'm like yes but one of the things I talked about in this workshop is that vicars right to use I guess our Anglican terminology are so busy they're so busy yeah they've got buildings to maintain they've got AGMs they've got countless meetings to be honest you know, they've got pastoral emergencies. They've got liturgical planning, you know, for the actual services. Yeah, I was going to say. It's funerals. endless. Funerals, weddings,
1: services, yeah. you name it. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, managing that broken cupboard door. You know, it, it's it's endless, the list of things that need to get done.
1: And lots of us who have served in those roles have families yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, families require time and effort and the right kind of energy too.
0: It's no wonder that in all of this busyness, our one-on-one kind of deep conversations or very intentional conversations are one of the first things that fall to the bottom of the list. And it's, you know, often I like to make the distinction between preemptive pastoral care or conversation and reactive pastoral care or conversation. Mm -hmm. Reactive conversation or pastoral care being there's a crisis that's happened and I need to talk to you about it. Preemptive is talking to someone in whatever season of life they're in, whether that's crisis moment or not, um, so that we have an ongoing sort of touching base with people in our communities. We know where they're, where they're at, and we kind of get a sense of their baseline as well, actually, so that we can better appreciate or recognise when they might be struggling as well.
1: And look, I, I feel for clergy uh, in, in parish roles like this that you've talked about. Because, yeah, I do too. Because, look, the reality is, that they might have a very small team, they might be the only person in what we call a being in sole charge of a community, where there can be a lot of pressure on them, where there are dozens if not hundreds of people in the community all needing time. So I do think, yeah, what you say is totally true, that, that pre-emptive pastoral care is definitely the aim. You know, if we're in a relationship with people, uh, it makes it a lot easier to kind of gauge when those things are happening. I also know one of the realities, though, is that mm. sometimes there are there are seasons where there's so much going on in a community that, that actually all a clergy person can do is give kind of reactive pastoral yeah. care because there's just so much and mm. so many things happening all at once that maybe that's what you can be capable of.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think this is, we come back to, we're not perfect, right? <laughs> we offer what we can and we try to offer our best, I think is, is key, but there are going to be seasons, eh, where we just can't. We can't manage the load.
1: Uh, and I think it also really points to how important drawing other people into this kind of really important work is. And yeah, that it's not absolutely. A really a job that one person can hold alone uh, and that actually wherever it is we're doing ministry, we, we need teams of people. We need to be able to recognise that that actually I can't. I can't quite get to everyone. What are the strategies I can use to make sure that all that important work around these these deep conversations is happening and is happening appropriately uh, and in a way that's healthy. It's r- huge questions and such a tough thing to deal with.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, one of the other dynamics too that we have is is often we will have, um, you know, uh, children's uh, families, youth, and young adults kind of specialists, right? Who will kind of Ooh, have yeah. a particular responsibility in a parish, right? Where they'll they'll be sort of looking out for these different groups, and this is this is important stuff, right? Like, don't get me wrong, this is really key. This is part of being able to manage that well. But I think one of the one of the points that I brought to ministry conference was it can't just be. You know, it can't, especially when it comes to young adults, which I mean, this is unbiased, right? This is my specialty, but we're in a crisis at the moment, like <laughs> you yeah. know, young adults aren't like sort of prolific in the, um, in the Anglican church. So, um, there aren't a huge amount of them. And I think that a really special focus needs to be put on this age group, um, not just by those who are kind of in those specialty ministries, but actually by, you know, our priests and, and vicars and stuff, because, um. They, they basically need our attention. And like you said, Richard, it, you know, it's hard and we can't always get it done. Right. But I think if we've got at least that awareness and intention, then we can actually do something ourselves and, and have a coffee with this person from time to time and, and link in and just communicate that we care. Then that's, that's something. And it's not just something. It's really profound.
1: Yeah. You're preaching to the choir on this one, Sarah. <laughs> like, I, I really agree. Look. Connection with young people is just, for me, has been a really life giving part of ministry. It's something that I've really enjoyed, uh, even though it has its challenges. And look, we have all sorts of age ranges in our church communities. And I think it's reasonable for everyone to want to feel connected with that community. And that comes through relationship with people within that community. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, I was certainly one of those people. And I grew up in communities where I was able to develop those sorts of connections and have conversations that led me in all sorts of directions and were supportive and helped me work through all sorts of stuff that was going on in my life. And that's a big part of the reason why I hung in with church.
0: That's great. And I think, you know, you say all sorts of stuff that's going on in my life, you know, mm, and yeah. one of the things that does come to mind, of course, is this concept of deconstruction. Now, it's a heavy word. It's a big word and I know Ooh. people feel different things about it. But it's one that we, you know, need to use really. And I have my own kind of working definition for this for this concept. Yep. And it's the critical analysis of one's own inherited belief system. So if you've grown up in the church or you've grown up with some kind of faith, you get to an age or a stage rather where you start to then be a bit critical about it. Start to Start to analyze it and consider hey, how much of this do I believe? And how much of this have I inherited without really thinking much about it? And this process of deconstruction can start to happen around the young adult age group. It can happen at any age. Uh, it doesn't have to happen then. I mean, for me, honestly, it started when I was like 16, which would put me in kind of the youth bracket. Yeah, I was um, in a
1: similar ballpark.
0: But it can happen at different times. And, you know, a really common time for it to happen. For example, is like university. If someone chooses to go, yeah. because they're all of a sudden um, exposed to a whole bunch of um, new ideas, uh, and also uh, you know critical thought is is really crucial if you're going to go anywhere at university, right? So, so that kind of thing sets in, and all of a sudden. A faith that perhaps felt very global to you in terms of your belief and what you thought about God and you know morality and all of these things all of a sudden you realize oh my gosh these don't apply to everybody else and other people believe in different gods or they believe in different uh, moral structures or different inherited belief systems and which one's right and you feel lost all of a sudden, right? Yeah,
1: for sure. So sometimes those things that we've assumed to be true, we discover, oh, maybe that's not quite as universal as I once believed. Yeah. Maybe this doesn't apply to everyone. (laughs) And if this is all part of what I'd call my foundational theology, well, what happens if we start pulling the foundations apart? Oh no, the whole building might fall over, which is a terrifying concept, right?
0: It really is. And uh, I mean, a bit of a personal story. Of course, I mentioned that I started something of a deconstruction journey. Maybe it's 16 years old and for me what started that was actually that I had inherited this belief within Christianity that being in a homosexual relationship you know was a sin and I'm not asking everyone who's listened to this podcast to comment about that because I know we hold a diversity of this view within the Anglican church but for me personally at 16 this was a problem because I had a lot of queer friends yeah and I realized hold on these people, and some of them come into my youth group, you know, these people are just like me, you know, and and actually they're not terrible people. And just because they have, you know, a relationship with the same gender doesn't mean that they are any different to me, actually, in terms of their capacity to love and to follow Jesus.
1: So can I ask a question? Yeah. Here? Because I'm thinking about the earlier part of our conversation and we were talking about the I-thou relationship. Yes. Was that part of how your questioning process was happening around those particular people?
0: It did, because if essentially what I was seeing were these people being seen as its', not thous. Mm. And that didn't sit well with my understanding of who God was. And when I read about Jesus, you know, in the gospels and and seeing this kind of radical passion for the marginalized, and i I just was looking at this marginalized group thinking, How have we turned these people into objects? Mm. You know, it it just did not – it was not congruent at all. And so I started this question. I was like, hold on, but if I'm having questions about that, then how much of this other stuff have I learned that might not be true to me and and to even the wider church, you know? Is this just – One opinion, or is are there more? You know, (laughs) and what does the Bible say? And are there different ways to read the Bible? And oh my goodness, there are. Um
1: (laughs) So can I share a a similar but slightly different thought? When I was a young person, this was how I came to reflect and change my position on issues of race, Mm. because I had a really close friend growing up who was Samoan, and so as a young uh, Paerangi New Zealander, there were times where occasionally we would. Look, it was the 80s people. Sometimes we'd say things that were a bit racist. But the thing is, this friend of mine, uh, Andrew was his name, had known me since I was about six years old. And so at the time where, you know, some more racist attitudes were creeping in when we were 11 or 12 years old, he was the one who would sort of go, hey, you, what do you mean people are like that? You're talking about people like me. And he was able to do that because... I didn't see him as an object, I saw him as a person because we were already friends, we were already close and so it shifted that perception for me and suddenly I was like, oh that's right, it's not right to talk about any kind of other person who's different from me as, as, as an object because they're human beings too and yeah, he was a really good friend and he set my life on a really different trajectory because he taught me what it was to be privileged and white and to make room for people who are different because I loved and cared about him, and so he was able to have that conversation with me. So I was really blessed and shaped by that relationship.
0: That's amazing. What a gift, right? And on that note, and I remember being at university and learning sort of the the connection for the first time between some of the white supremacy movements and how they had been tied into scripture and Christianity. And I was appalled, but I had never had the space to even make those connections or learn about this stuff. And all of a sudden I was seeing that the Bible had been used and weaponized against people and, re- and thought, I can't have anything to do with that, but I love Jesus. What the heck am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and I think this was really, really crucial to talk about because while I'd, I'd inherited a particular theology and a particular way of seeing things, I had also, through the various ministries that I'd been you know, involved with, I'd really developed what I would consider to be a relationship with God. You know, I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't devoid of feeling. It wasn't devoid of formation. I really did feel a sense of being seen by God and loved by God and empowered by God to be, you know, a participant in God's story. All of those things were true, but I was also experiencing some of these other things that I just felt could not coexist with these other feelings. And so I at the age of 18, after a um, trip around the world naturally by myself, I <laughs> I was really messed up, okay? So I decided <laughs> I had to travel a lot <laughs> and I had to see the world. and I know that's a very privileged thing to be able to do, but I did work sort of 60 hour weeks <laughs> after school just so I could like fund this. So I traveled through sort of 10 countries on my own through you know Asia, Africa, Europe saw a lot and experienced a lot and decided before I'd even come home, I need to go and study theology. I need to work this out because there are so many ways of seeing the world. There are so many experiences of people, and I need to be able to start looking critically at this. Otherwise, I'm going to throw it out, and I can't do that.
1: Yeah, and how seriously lucky would you have been to have actually grown up in a situation where the foundational theology that was given to you, that became part of your life was somehow 100% accurate about everything. Like, (laughs) seriously, what are the odds? But I also pick up on your other point. Look, I went through a similar process at a similar age. And I was part of a community where I could have those discussions where people didn't provide me with hard answers but helped me to explore. Mm. And they would say gentle things like, well, it's not quite that simple, Richard. What about this? What about that? And they'd prod me in different directions when I was being very black and white in my own thinking at times. Not so much the case now, but sometimes I can still be quite quite dogmatic in, in things I, I think. Really? But they Never would noticed. Yeah, occasionally. Only mm. um, a few <laughs> things. <laughs> but people would help me gently explore mm-hmm. and, and allow me space to do that. And I'm really grateful I got that because a heck of a lot of my friends who had had kind of. Experiences of God and had, had become part of Christian communities and started going through this process you've described of asking questions and hang on, does this fit together as well as you know my Sunday school teacher suggested? Not bagging on the Sunday school teachers out there. Look, you'd we love our Sunday yeah, school teachers, you do really important work. Kia so kaha. Please just <laughs> do it really well. <laughs> but a heck of a lot of them just went, Look, this is too hard, and they chucked religion in. Mm. Mm. And some of them were people who I was convinced Were going to be great leaders in the church Because they yeah. were so passionate And there were so many things going right And these things, various issues came along Where they went, I can't make sense of it It's yeah. too hard And now people are telling me I'm believing the wrong thing Or I shouldn't be questioning this And mm. and they just went, oh, I've had enough and, and, yeah. and walk away And I I'm just so conscious of that all the time Of... For all the people I know who, who came to faith at that, that time of our lives, so few of them are still active in the church. So I'm, yeah. I, th- I think what you're pointing to is that this process is such a critical one. It's such an important one. And it really has a big impact on the direction our faith journey may go.
0: Yeah. And it's not bad. It's not bad. Like, I, honestly, mm, no. when I started going through this deconstruction, I remember some of, you know, my previous church contacts some of them were amazing, like you, just, you know, really journeyed with me and were able to kind of hear me out and, and sort of just give me a bit of nuance here now and then, you know, because I was getting a bit angsty and stuff like that. And they were like, calm down, Sarah, you know, there's, there's more to the story. But equally, I had others who, you know, were like, oh, she's backsliding and mm. look, she dyed her hair. And, you know, although I'd done that at 12, but whatever, um, <laughs> you know, there was there was this kind of really negative assumption around this journey for me and while it was i will admit the first year was deeply uncomfortable for me um it was really scary year and i think we're going to talk about that soon it was really really scary but i remember this perception of me being kind of losing the faith or backsliding or you know sort of exploring heretical ideas and and things and none of that was actually happening Mm, (laughs) none of that was happening i had You know, in hindsight, Kay, even though that first year, particularly of of really intense deconstruction, which happened my first year of theology, I would say, was one of the years that I think I've been the closest to God in my entire life. At the time, it probably didn't feel like it in the same way, but it's because I was clinging on to God with everything I had, Mm. right? It was this desperation of. I love you so much (laughs) and I am found in you to such a degree that I cannot lose you. But I also can't make sense of this. And it was the sense of being in the middle of a storm, right? And, And holding on for dear life. And what I was holding on to ultimately was God, right? Even though I couldn't articulate that at the time. And that in itself was massively formational for me. Because then, you know, at any kind of difficult point in my life, I know what that feels like. Yeah. I know what it feels like to be lost. I know what it feels like to not know which way is right, which way is wrong, quote unquote. You know, I, I, I know how it feels to be in a state of panic and, and sort of chaos and crisis and still know that God loves me. Yeah. And so that alone was really formational. And I think there were some people in my life that really got that and understood that but there were others that where it was just really not helpful to kind of see me as this kind of evil character who sort of left the church and yeah. things even though by the way I never really left yeah so it's sort of interesting the ways in which different people uh, respond to those who are going through a deconstruction process and i think this whole thing relates to conversation really well doesn't it because if we're in good relationships Uh, and we're having those good conversations before we enter into this sort of deconstructive phase, or, I mean, that phase can potentially last a lifetime, but more on that later. Um, If we have those relationships already intact, then it becomes a lot easier for us to kind of be in that space without having that additional fear of people's judgment upon you. And you have this sort of freedom to be able to stay in relationship with the church Whilst also experience some differing opinions to the kind of stuff that you grew up with. And that tension's really hard to keep. But I honestly think these conversations, these I vow relationships, are the kind of essential ingredient.
1: Okay, so bear with me on this thought. As you know, I have two daughters. Yep. And they're going through this slightly weird phase where, for some reason, they've decided they need to keep. Um, constantly assuring me that I'm the best dad in the world. <laughs> Obviously, I'm very fragile. Yeah, dad, you're the best dad in the world. And my response to that always is, really, really, girls, I'm, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm fairly sure I'm maybe in the, the lower half of that list. I, I, <laughs> if we rank all the dads in the world. Yeah, I try hard and I love you a lot, but I'm, I'm, I don't know that I'm the best, whatever the best is. They have that image and they have that idea in their head of, Dad, you're the model of what being a dad is like and we think you're really good at it. And and look, it's it's something that they say out of love and I get that. Uh, and I was the same with my parents growing up, right? I thought they were amazing. And something happened again through my teens of that realisation of, which my girls haven't gone through yet, but I went through as a teenager, of my parents aren't perfect. The idea I had of them, actually they make mistakes. Sometimes they get things wrong and yes, they love me and they're really well-intentioned, but All the things that I thought about them when I was really young aren't entirely true. There's some truth to it, but it's a bit of a mixed bag. And I don't need to think that they're perfect either. I can love them and understand that they're people and they're on a journey and they're changing. Just as my kids are going to have to learn that about me. (laughs) Unfortunately,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I hope that actually the relationship is strong enough that we'll continue. And look, that is what my deconstruction of religion was like too. When I was young, I had an idea of what God was like. There were all sorts of things I was told that God would be and be for me. And I always had a very strong sense of a close relationship with God. But through various trials and tribulations throughout my teen years, those things really came into question. And the God that I believed in when I was five years old wasn't the right God when I was 16. It wasn't the right God when I was 21 dealing with mental health issues, and that each time I had to say, no, the thing that I call God is what I've shaped for myself, but the thing is, God is bigger than whatever idea I have of God. Mm. God is so much bigger. And in fact, uh, our, our good friend, the late Bishop Jim White, I can remember him saying in a sermon at Synod, he just said, we just all need to remember, God is very, very, very big. <laughs> And we are very, very, very small, and knowing that is a really good thing because it's that thing of we're not deconstructing God. God is really, really, really big. What we're de- deconstructing is my understanding of
0: God. Absolutely. Um, yep. Hundred percent. You got it.
1: Yeah. And what we've I've got to trust is that actually, God's here on this side of that process, and God's on the other side, and. That work isn't finished either, because there are still bits of my understanding of God which I still am going. Now there are lots of bits where I'm going, I kind of deconstructed that, and I've come to what I think now, and actually it's still working pretty well. Uh, and I've got some basic things that I definitely go, yep, that's that is really what I think. But I also know, as recently, as actually a couple of weeks ago, I went, I'm going to try praying with a different name for God. Mm. Than what I normally use And the name for God I chose to pray with Was Mother of Us All mm. And it was a real freeing experience That allowed me to encounter God More deeply in a different way And that might not sit comfortably with everyone You yeah, know, I'm someone who does have a strong sense of God Containing both masculine and feminine characteristics and all things between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I definitely have that sense of God being again mm-hmm. very, very, very big and we are very, very small. But for me it was a real liberating experience that improved my relationship with God. And here I am at my age, still making those sorts of discoveries. So mm-hmm. you know, yep, deconstructing definitely happens, particularly around developmentally these particular points in our lives and that's mm-hmm. quite a common thing. But it but it doesn't finish either. No as we no. get older.
0: That's right. And, and, you know, so much of deconstruction, I think is not just about God, eh? it's about the church, mm. you know? So, you know, and I often encounter this quite a lot where I'll talk to a young person who say used to go to church for many years and who hasn't for many years. And I'll say, why'd you leave? You know, not in a guilt trip way, kind of like, why'd you leave? <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause I totally <laughs> Tell me get why. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they'll say, oh no, I've got nothing wrong with God. I've got nothing wrong with Jesus. I just couldn't handle the church anymore, mm. and that was really interesting, eh? So, th- so there's kind of these two components to deconstruction, I think, um, in that in that respect, and more. Of course, there'll be more than two. But, um, you know, to be broad on these two categories, there's there's what we think and feel and and believe about God that we've inherited, but then there's also what we think and feel and believe about who the church is. And for me, that was a big deal, because especially in my example of when I was sixteen, right, I was like, I don't. I don't feel or see much evidence for for God having a problem with my queer friends, but I do see the church having a problem institutionally. And so, where does that leave me? You know, especially as I consider the church as being the body of Christ. Hmm. So, you know, that was a big, big thing as well.
1: Still a big thing. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and another thing that I had struggled with as well was, okay, what's the point of Christianity? Is it to Convert everyone to my belief system because if it is, if it's just that, that sounds really boring. Like I want people to, you know, don't get me wrong. I want people to know and love and experience God as love. Right. Mm. It's not like I don't want that. I'm just not convinced that this is it. You know, this can't be like my whole purpose sort of convincing other people that what I believe is is the right way and theirs is wrong. Mm. I was like, I don't want to live my life like that. I don't feel like God wants me to live my life like that. I think there's more to this, but I can't I couldn't quite articulate it because I hadn't had the the sort of the the conversation actually yet with other people yeah. with who had quite different ideas, expanded ideas on what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ, right? What it meant to what reconciliation of all things meant, you know, what the mission of God was on, on a holistic scale. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's more than just this. You know, I didn't realize it could be actually about the environment and it could be about social justice and it could be about, you know, actual reconciliation on a kind of macro scale, you know. Uh, and once I of to read about this stuff and encounter people who had these ideas, I thought, oh, my gosh, God is way bigger than I thought. And that whole process was really wonderful. And I know, Richard, before you you used a great analogy um, about the kind of journey of deconstruction where you said, you know, you kind of beforehand you go up to the top of a, roller coaster right you can i can almost hear it as you were describing like this <laughs> chink ching ching, 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 you know coming up to the top and this is kind of your your build-up right all of your inherited belief systems the chink chink, chink is totally like my <laughs> um impression of this in my brain but yeah and then you get to the top right mm. and of course there's the massive drop yeah and that is you know w- what richard was using to describe this this first sort of entry into the deconstruction mode yeah. and how absolutely terrifying that first drop is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that is what it is that you know that first rise on a roller coaster is where we it's all the stuff we and you know that stuff we were talking about the foundational kind of theology that we get over a lifetime and then that plunge down where we go oh <laughs> hang on what do you mean <laughs> Mrs. Wilson the Sunday school teacher wasn't right about that I oh, questioning her hermeneutics and everything. Uh <laughs> And and we can feel quite lost as it is destabilizing. But I think the nice thing for, for experienced roller coaster riders, mm. right, is that, yeah, that first plunge is really scary. But actually, there are going to be other things after it. You're, you're mm. going to go, the roller coaster is going to go up again. You're going to yeah. learn things and develop things and they might go down again. You might. I don't know, do a corkscrew. Who knows theologically what the corkscrew represents? I'm sure someone out there will have a suggestion. Absolutely, yeah. I'm <laughs> waiting for that. It'll be fun. Um, yeah, but it is that thing of, it is It is this lifelong journey where we continue experience. And you're right. So much of it happens in late teen years, early young adulthood. A lot of this work takes place in that. Not for everyone, but for a lot of us. And it is a really important that we create space for people to have those conversations. Mm, mm. And that some of us who are kind of, more experienced theological roller coaster riders can actually do a lot in terms of mm. walking with others and saying, Yep, there's space for you to be on that journey. Yeah. You don't have to fall off the roller coaster, stay on it.
0: Yeah, stay yeah, on it buckle and keep up. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can sort of be on the cart with them, you know, uh, in all of the chaos and the unexpected sort of nature of that process. And that was what was so crucial for me, eh, was just having those people on board with me who'd been who'd ridden the ride a lot of times and yeah. <laughs> and earlier
1: when you were talking about you know what we imagine the the body of Christ to be and and what the church is and what that role in our life like look Sarah has the sticker on her laptop that sits here throughout our recording, which says, "What is your enneagram?" <laughs> <laughs> I always think about it because, on, for those of you who are familiar with Enneagram, look. If you're not familiar, get familiar. It's really Absolutely. interesting. Yep, it's it, really it. helpful for for learning who you are.
0: And just a shout out to Jessica Hughes who got me that sticker <laughs> on <from> my laptop. <laughs> um,
1: but my my Enneagram personality type is a one, and ones are we can like you were talking about. Wow, uh, you know, is our job in church to tell people what to believe? Well. The one in me was like, yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what my job's going to be. I'm going I'm to nail belief so well, I will tell everyone what to believe. And it's okay, I was really wrong.
0: <laughs> well, as a two on the Enneagram, I was all like, that's so oppressive. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just so funny, these different, different ways of looking at it.
1: Yeah, but uh, as I've deconstructed my personality type, one of the things I realized is, no, no, that, that's not my role. What what is it I think that the church is? And I think it's a group of people who are who are journeying and exploring together. And that's what I think it is. And I think my job is to as as a leader in the church is kinda to be one of the people who says, Hey everyone, remember we're here to explore. That's mm. what we're doing. I'm exploring, you're exploring, we're all exploring.
0: Mm.
1: And let's keep exploring.
0: And we can do stuff and explore. Yeah,
1: for sure. And for me that's I mean, heck, you can hear it in the way I'm talking right now. This is still one of the things that excites me about belonging to the church. There are lots of things that aren't right about the church. Like, I'm someone who's, again, personality type, quite critical. I can look at the failings of the institution. I can look at, wow, this would just be so much better if we just did things this way. Look, that's Mm. totally how I think about things. And look, when I was younger, I came to the church and I thought, heck, this institution is just going to love me and support me throughout my life and Ah, oh, it'll be so rewarding, and and it was, again, I had to really deconstruct my over-romanticised idea of what that relationship was going to be about because, you know, that was an unrealistic expectation. But I still care about the church, and I'm yeah. still in relationship with it. So, again, that's part of my ongoing conversation with the, mm. the I-it mm. of the institution, right?
0: Yeah, great, great way to wrap that up. <laughs> Coming back to Martin Buber, love it. So there's this other concept alongside deconstruction which is reconstruction. Mm. And you uh, alluded to it, Richard, with, yeah, the, with roller the roller coaster. coaster. Yep. In the sense that you go down and then you kind of come up and then you go down and you kind of come up. And also that alludes to the fact that the sort of deconstruction reconstruction journey is not a one-off. It's not oh, I had one year of deconstruction when I was 19 years old. And now I know everything that there is to know about God and the Bible, and I'm completely satisfied with where I landed forever. Yes. Because that is just not my experience. <laughs> I,
1: I, I did hear someone say that once. I like, no, no, I, I I get that. I've done my deconstruction. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean. Is, is there not more to do?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion that I'm always learning. Uh, and that it's, you know, yes, there, there are two sides to this. There's the... Can we completely know God? No.
1: No. No. (laughs) No.
0: Right. So we're still learning all the time. Yeah. But can we know God? Yes.
1: And can we know God more and more?
0: Yes. Yes. And that is a beautiful thing for me. And I guess that's embracing this non-dualism, right? That we Mm. have to eventually, I believe, embrace if we are going to move into a, a, a mature faith. I think, and that's why, you know, as I went through this deconstruction, reconstruction, deconstruction, reconstruction, with the incredible accompaniment of these amazing people in my life who could hold space for that, I was able to lean a bit more into Celtic spirituality, and I could move into sort of a bit more kind of mystic Christianity and embrace the the sort of hermits, you know, and embrace this idea of mystery. And, and what does it mean to know God in and through creation and you know all of that kind of stuff which i would have never been introduced to otherwise Mm. and beautiful things that really resonated not just with my heritage interestingly enough but also this idea that we can't fully know god and that's okay and that we're still learning and that's also okay and the holy spirit is still speaking to us and that's great (laughs) all of these things um without having to chuck out the baby with the bathwater, right it was Yeah, yeah yeah
1: No one should hear this and go, wow, this is a real cop-out. Heck, Sarah, we've done a lot of podcasting together. Do I really fully know you at this point? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what a relationship is, right? Mm. Is that actually we continue to know each other more and more over time. And Mm. that's part of the richness of longer-term relationships Mm. is that actually... There is this thing, and I can, I, because I'm an old fogey now, I can say this. You know, I have some relationships that have endured over really long periods of time. The river of that relationship isn't any wider, but it is certainly a lot deeper. And it yeah. is deeper. And that's true of our relationship with God, too, mm. is that the nature of the relationship fundamentally might change, but it will certainly deepen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that depth is important.
0: Yeah, yeah. One last thing. There is an assumption as well that if you go through deconstruction, you lose a bunch of your beliefs. I want to push back on that as well and to say that's not necessarily true. Mm, your, no, leads, not your, your beliefs might change a little bit. They might shift drastically. But my experience of deconstruction was not that at all. It was very much holding on to a lot of my beliefs, but in a different posture, I think. And I, this is just something I'd love more people to understand, eh? Is that, you know, because there is this panic when young people or anyone enters into deconstruction. It's like, oh no, here's the beginning of the end. And it's like, no, this is just the beginning of the awesome. Yes. <laughs>
1: that is such a good way to put it. Yeah, I was gonna, I was just going to say the beginning of the beginning, but yeah. the beginning of the awesome is so much is, better.
0: because it's exciting. And you start to see people really living into their faith in a way that has so much more authenticity um, they start to own what they believe and it's a beautiful thing to witness uh, and you know it's a little bit like sometimes trying to learn to ride a bike or you know whatever else it's but wobbly you know and you might fall off a few times and get some bruises and and some scars and things like that but it's a process and it can be fun and exciting along the road so there's a little bit of encouragement for, for anyone who's, you know, knowing someone who's entering into deconstruction or in the midst of it, you know, themselves. Like, it, it can be fun. It can be exciting. It can also be terrifying, just like a roller coaster.
1: <laughs> One of the favorite blessings I really like to use has a particular line about the wildness of God. Oh, yeah. And I love that because it's about this, right? It's about stepping from the, the known, the safe, the mm. protective God the small God, mm. into the kind of wild, radical, transformational love of God, which, again, is so much
0: bigger. Yeah.
1: And that's, yeah, I'm the same. That, that's exciting.
0: And if we go back, I mean, I know for me, going back and reading through the Gospels with this kind of wild and wonderful sort of perception of God, which was growing all the time, I would read these completely differently. I was like, whoa this is huge. Like, you know, Jesus is amazing. Like way more amazing than I even thought before. And, you know, so that was, that was quite interesting in itself eh, to notice like, wow, the assumption from others. And what I was told by others was through this deconstruction, you're going to love Jesus less. And actually the opposite was true.
1: Well, I didn't really know what to expect when Sarah said, we were going to talk about conversations today, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm really glad. And, Look, sadly, I missed uh, the Diocesan Ministry Conference because I had COVID. I, mm. was, I was too unwell to come. But um, yeah, I really wish I'd been there because this just sounds so important and it goes right to the heart of ordinary saints, but I hope bigger than that, the heart of ministry mm. because actually this is what it's about, right? And that you're right, so many of our young people need deep conversations, deep eye thou conversations, mm. room to explore, to ask the big questions and to find people who are going to explore alongside them. Mm
0: -hmm. That's right. And if you are in Tamaki Makoto and you're wanting to check out the Community of Ordinary Saints, uh, you're most welcome to whatever stage you're at in your faith journey, deconstruction, reconstruction or otherwise. You're welcome.